0: Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. And welcome back to the show. I'm so excited for today's episode, the Q&A episode I've been talking about all spring. I want to give a big thanks to the many people who sent me in their questions on Facebook or Twitter or my website, and I'm going to try to get through most of those today. If I don't get to yours, know that I'm going to hold on to them and try to work them in in future episodes, but today I'm going to tackle questions about the theology of marriage, especially about marrying non-Catholics. I got a number of questions about that. I got questions about Jesus' death on the cross, about what's so new about the new evangelization, and I got one on this week's feast day about the ascension of Jesus, but I want to start with a question about the Blessed Virgin Mary. Are there any Mary lovers out there, you people who love Mary? You remember those cryptic words that Simeon spoke to Mary in the presentation scene? Do you remember that? Listen to those words in the fourth joyful mystery. Simeon turns to Mary, singles her out, and says... Behold, this child is set for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Now I'm going to turn to John who sent me this question from Facebook. John was wondering about that last line. It comes in Luke chapter 2 verse 35 so that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. He asked Dr. Shree, what is that what does that mean? Uh, well, let's put it in context here. Everything in these words from to Mary from Simeon are all about the intense opposition Jesus is going to face. When Jesus grows up, this little child, when he grows up and starts his public ministry, he's going to be hated. He's going to be opposed. He'll be destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel. That's about how many of those that are lowly and suffering and poor, they're going to believe in Jesus and they'll be raised up and exalted in his kingdom. But those that are mighty and powerful and the religious leaders of his day are going to oppose Jesus. They're going to be cast down. Then Simeon goes on and talks about how Jesus will be a sign that is contradicted or spoken against. In Luke's gospel, that describes uh, people that are opposed to Jesus, plotting against him. Uh, Then he talks about the sword—that's the most, the, the, the most graphic image here. The sword would bring to mind bloodshed, war, death, and he's giving a prophecy about how Jesus will experience being pierced by a sword on the cross on Good Friday. But that's going to cause his mother tremendous suffering. And that sword will pierce her soul also. So to hear everything in Simeon's prophecy up to this point is all about the future opposition, hatred, hostility, and uh, and, and violence that will be inflicted against Jesus. But then, in this last line, all of that suffering, all of that opposition, all that hostility is going to happen so that the thoughts out of many hearts would be revealed. Now, what do those words mean? Do you remember in the Gospels later on in Jesus' public ministry, there would be people who have hostile thoughts against Jesus? They're angry, they're grumbling in their mind. They don't say anything out loud, but Jesus can read their thoughts and and he brings those thoughts out into the open. That's what this is talking about. That's what Simeon's words are pointing to. So, for example, do you remember that story of Jesus is uh, at a Pharisee's house for dinner, but there's this woman who's... Seems to be a notorious sinner, and she's been kissing Jesus's feet, and the Pharisees just so upset by this. He's wondering in his head, why is Jesus allowing this? Doesn't he realize that she's a sinner? This is not right. And Jesus takes those thoughts from this man's heart and makes them revealed. They come out into the open. He calls them on it. Uh, I think that's what's going on here. Uh, those are the hostile thoughts of those opponents of Jesus, those that are plotting against him, they're going to come out, and those negative thoughts are going to be revealed, especially when we see him die on the cross. Now, thank you very much to you, John, for that question. I'm going to turn to Monica, who also sent me a question on Facebook. Monica asked, what's the difference, Dr. Shree, between being baptized in the Catholic Church and the baptism of of other Christian denominations. Do they receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit like we do in their baptisms? Great question here. To understand this, Monica, and anyone else that's interested in this, I want to talk about the theology of baptism for a moment. What's at the heart of a Catholic understanding of baptism that may make it different from other Christian denominations? In the Catholic understanding, there's a profound realism. This is not just some ritual we go through. This isn't just a symbolic way of expressing my desire to repent and turn back to God or to be cleansed spiritually. No, This is much more than that. What the Catholic Church teaches about baptism is that we are changed in baptism. We are made anew. The life of the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. Christ's life is dwelling within us. We have sanctifying grace. We are a new creation. So much so that as Christ's Spirit is in our hearts, St. Paul says, We can cry out to his father as our father. We cry out, Abba, Father. And that's not just a metaphor. It's the life of Jesus is dwelling within me, the true son of God, so much so that I can call God my father, not by nature, but by grace. This is the Catholic, deep, rich understanding of baptism. So when I'm considering other Christian denominations and their ritual baptism, I'm wondering, Do they also get the gift of the Holy Spirit? Do they have this inner transformation? There's three things I want to keep in mind. There would be more, but three main things. First, did they use water for baptism? That's essential that that you're baptized with water. Secondly, did they use the Trinitarian formula? Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching all that I've taught you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, did they use water? Did they were they baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? And then thirdly, did that other Christian denomination, that particular minister celebrating baptism, did he intend for this baptism to bring about that inner transformation in the soul? Did that denomination, did that pastor believe that baptism really filled the soul with the Holy Spirit and changed them and made them new? Uh, Do they really believe that? So if there's a Protestant... Who was baptized with water, and there was the Trinitarian formula used, as Jesus told us to have, and and they really intended this baptism to to bring about this change in a person's soul. Then we would say, yeah, that baptism is valid. They really are. Uh, they they really are uh, baptized in Jesus Christ. They really do have the gifts of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. But then there would be other Christian denominations that view it more as just a metaphor, just like a symbol, just a, a ritual we go through to express our repentance and. To, to, and and those, those baptisms would not be considered the, the full Christian baptism that has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit given to the to the soul receiving baptism. So thank you, Monica, for your question on baptism. I'm going to turn to another question. This one comes from Charlene on Facebook. Charlene's wondering, is a marriage between a baptized Catholic and a non-baptized person performed by a priest, is it a sacrament? So I'm going to repeat that question. If you got a baptized person, baptized Catholic... And a non-baptized person, they get married at the Catholic Church. There's a priest there. Is that marriage a sacrament? And the answer is no. It's not a sacrament. Now, some of you may be surprised, and you might be shocked. I want to be clear. We're not saying it's it's not a, a marriage. It is a marriage. Uh, it's a valid marriage. Uh, Everyone has the natural right to marry and to raise children together. So we're not denying that this is a marriage, but it's not a Christian marriage. It's not the sacrament of marriage. Why? Because who's the minister of the sacrament of marriage? It's not the priest. It's not a deacon. It's actually the man and woman, the husband and wife. They're the ministers of this sacrament. And if you're a baptized person, but you're marrying someone who's not baptized, That person doesn't have that inner transformation we just talked about. They don't have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christ-like dwelling within them. And so in a a Christian baptism or Christian celebration of, of of, of of holy matrimony, both spouses have the life of Christ within them. The same Jesus truly dwelling in me is dwelling in my spouse. And therefore, we can be bonded in Jesus Christ We're bonded in Christ because the same Christ in me is also in them. And we can draw upon this richness of grace that's made available to us in the sacrament uh, so that it helps me to love my spouse beyond what I could do on my own, uh, to be patient with them, to forgive them. Why? Because it it helps me to, to forgive like Jesus forgave, to be patient like Jesus was patient, to make sacrifices like Jesus made sacrifices. I have that same life of Christ dwelling in me that's also dwelling in my spouse, we are bonded in Christ, and then this treasure, this font of grace is made available to us. Now, if somebody has married a non-Catholic or a non-baptized person, I should say, then they're really married, but it's not a Christian marriage. It's not the sacrament of marriage. They're not able to, they're not bonded in the same way, and they're not able to draw upon the graces made available to them because their spouse doesn't have that life of Christ dwelling within them. Now, this is going to be related to another question that I received, this one coming from um, uh, Robert. Robert sent this to me on my website. He was wondering, what happens if you have a non-baptized person married to a Catholic and then the non-baptized person decides to go through RCA and enter the Catholic Church and they get baptized? What do they do now? Do they have to go through some special a marriage ceremony again? Do they have to do it all over again and have a big wedding? No, 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 they don't need to do that. The Catholic Church teaches that once that person becomes baptized, now they have the life of Christ in them, the same life of Christ that their spouse has, their marriage is made a Christian marriage right at that moment. So now they're bonded in Christ once that one person is baptized, and they can draw upon the graces of the sacrament at that moment. So thank you for those questions about marriage. I'm going to turn to Julie. Julie asked me a question about Jesus' death on the cross, and just wondering, why is there all this emphasis on blood when you read about the sacrifices in the Old Testament and Jesus' sacrifice involves blood? Why, do, why is there all this emphasis on blood? Well, in the Bible... Uh, one thing you find, and also in the ancient Near Eastern world, is that blood was a powerful symbol for life. Uh, the book of Leviticus says the life is in the blood. Uh, and so the idea of all those sacrifices in the Old Testament where you'd have blood being you know, poured out upon the altar, it wasn't so much that God was interested in blood. He just gets a kick out of seeing a lot of animal blood and cow blood and goat blood. No, that's not what this is about. It's the symbolism. Life is in the blood. And so the person offering up the animal is offering up the life of the animal. It's meant to be a symbol of they want to give something of their own life to God. I want to give God more of my life. Uh, and so when Jesus comes, and he comes and he offers not a lamb, he doesn't offer up a cow, he doesn't offer up uh, a bird. You know what he offers up himself? He offers up his own very life, his own body and blood for us on the cross. And that is, the act of shedding blood of Jesus has profound symbolism that goes way beyond just the significance of blood itself. Because Saint Anselm had once said, uh, "Just one drop of Christ's blood is enough to cover up all the sins of all humanity." Why? Because the real heart of Jesus's sacrifice again isn't all isn't all the pain he endured. It's what was happening in his own heart that he desired to endure that pain for the sake of our salvation, because he loved us so much. And the blood is just an exterior manifestation of the interior sacrifice Jesus made. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, he committed his will and said, not my will, but your will be done. And that's that's the heart of his sacrifice that's what gives value to all that happens on Good Friday that's what brings redemption about it. it wasn't how much blood did Jesus shed did we get enough blood out of him no the blood is a symbol of that interior sacrifice that's the heart of his sacrifice and it should be the heart of any sacrifice we make I'm going to turn to Angela who emailed me a question on my website about the beatific vision she says I often hear about this but I don't fully understand what it means. So, what is the beatific vision? Well, true happiness is found only when all of our desires are fulfilled. And so, the beatific vision is the fulfillment of all of our longings when we see God face to face in heaven. So, the beatific visions are perfect union with God. It's a vision of God. We see Him as He is. And so, my mind that wants to know and understand and put things together, understand all causes, here I come in contact with the first cause. I come to see. God himself, like St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In other words, right now, I, I, I understand, I can see certain things, but it's dim. But when I get to heaven, God willing, I'll be able to see our Lord Jesus. I'll see him as he really is and love him face to face. That will be the true Sabbath, the true rest, when all of my desires have finally come to rest in Jesus. Now, another question here. This one comes from Brenda. Uh, Great question about this week's feast on the ascension of our Lord. And I love this question, Brenda, because I can tell you are a careful reader of the Bible. Uh, Brenda notices that one book of the Bible called the Gospel of Luke tells us that the ascension of Jesus took place, you get the impression it took place, on that first Easter night, Uh, that first day Jesus rose from the dead, whereas Acts the Apostles, chapter 1, tells us that Jesus appeared to the apostles for 40 days and then ascended into heaven. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that the ascension took place in Bethany. Acts the Apostles tells us it took place at the Mount of Olives. How do we deal with these apparent contradictions here? Well, if anyone ever asks you which book of the Bible is right, this one or this one, your answer should always be both of them because <laughs> they're both inspired by God. They're both leading us to the same truth. We may not always understand how they fit together, but I think we could work this one out pretty easily. So uh, whether we want to say it's at Bethany or it's on the Mount of Olives, it I, I don't think it really matters because the Mount of Olives is a lo- is a long mountain, if you will, overlooking Jerusalem, and Bethany is on one of the slopes of the Mount of Olives. So you could say Bethany, you could say the amount of Olives. It's kind of like if you asked me, where do you live? And I said, oh, I live in Littleton, Colorado. But to some people, I might just say, oh, I live in Denver, because Littleton's a suburb of Denver, and both are fair, you know? So uh, I think that's what you find there in between Luke and Acts. But another thing, what about the 40 days, though? Uh, I think, listen to what Luke's gospel tells us. You know, Acts the Apostle says that Jesus ascended to heaven after the 40 days when he was appearing to his apostles. But Luke 24 gives us an account that Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to the rest of the apostles. And then it says in Luke 24:50, then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. You get the sense this happened right away on that first Easter night. And the way I would look at this is Luke is just giving a brief synopsis just right to the point jesus rose from the dead he appeared to the two on the road to emmaus he appeared to the other apostles and then he just wants to just in a couple sentences just sum up the end of the story and he ascended into heaven i don't think i don't think luke was intending us to think that this this happened right away exactly at that time on that first easter night uh, I think he's just giving a brief synopsis, wrapping up his gospel, just pointing ahead to, and, and he's going to rise. He's going to. He, he's going to ascend into heaven. When you turn to Acts, the apostles, which was also written by Luke, there in in Acts chapter one, Luke gives us the more extended account. He gives. He's going to give us more of the details. He's going to tell us about. This was after forty days and. The question the apostles asked about when the kingdom's coming, and the cloud all of a sudden raises Jesus up into heaven, and he is, is he's ascended. So uh, I, I think Luke's gospel is brief, right to the point. Here's what happened: He rose from the dead, appeared to the two, appeared to the others, and then he ascended. And then actually Apostle chapter one goes back and revisits the story of the Ascension and rounds it out and gives the details. So thank you for that question there. Uh, One last question here. This one from overseas. I'm turning to my friend Fernando. Fernando is a seminarian in Toledo, Spain. Thank you for this question. He says, why do we say that the new evangelization is new in expression? What does that mean? Well, Fernando is referring to a quote from Saint John Paul II, who said, "The new evangelization is new in method, new in art, or new in expression." What does that mean? Well, the new evangelization is all about evangelizing the baptized, evangelizing those that may have heard of Christianity. They they have some familiarity with the Catholic Church. Maybe they go to church every once in a while. Maybe they go to mass every week. Maybe they even volunteer in their parish but they just haven't surrendered their life to Christ. Jesus isn't the number one thing in their life. Other things in the world are more important. How do we present the gospel to reawaken faith in their life? Uh, How do we do that? Well, one thing we need to do is take the same timeless teachings of Jesus Christ, but present them in a new, timely way. So it's not about any kind of changing of the teaching, but just using new expressions that, that meet people where they're at today, that are going to be meaning for them today. Uh, One of the things we do uh, a lot in focus at the Fellowship of Catholic University students is explaining our faith through our own personal testimony. And sharing a testimony has been used throughout the centuries in the church. But today there's a sense that, you know, we could talk about doctrines in the abstract, but if we don't, make it real and concrete and give an example from our own encounter with Jesus, our own encounter with the sacraments, or our own experience with the church's moral teachings. If I'm just teaching theoretically in the abstract, it doesn't connect with people as well. Uh, and so we need these new expressions of faith. That's why uh, Pope Paul VI famously said, the modern man listens to witnesses more Then they listen to teachers, and if they happen to listen to teachers, it's because they're witnesses. I love that quote, and again, it's the idea that we're not just going to teach in the abstract, but I have to teach from my own encounter with Jesus, from my own experience of His grace and His love through the church. That's going to be much more powerful than just an abstract philosophical argument. Uh, So I think that's an example of how we need new expressions. We're still going to use philosophical arguments, of course, but. Can we also bring in that note of testimony? That would be one way of looking at new expressions. And there's many other ways uh, of of doing that. That's just one example. So my friends, thank you so much for listening to this special Q&A episode. If you like this show, can I ask that you write a review? Uh, Please write a review on iTunes or on Google Play. That helps get it out to more people. Thanks for all of you who have written reviews. And for those that sent me questions, you can always reach me on Facebook or Twitter or my website, which is edwardsree.com. God bless.